Hello everyone, this is Shweb Khan here at Anti Small Talk, and today is our third episode in our series Heroes Without Capes Voices from Within the Classroom. Today I'm really excited to announce that we have Oliver Wright, who is going to be our Heroes Without a Cape. Uh, we're going to have a great conversation about all things education, including things he's passionate about, things he's not so passionate about, uh, and also um, music as well, which is uh, something that's really bonded us. So, hello Oliver, and welcome to Anti Small Talk. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. Absolutely brilliant. It's uh, one of those things where myself and Oliver had a conversation across social media and there was an opportunity there to do a collaboration and Oliver's experience and wealth of experience and that I believe really enlightened us all. So um, first of all, Oliver, to start with, you know, who is Oliver? Who are you? What is your background? It's always such a really difficult question to answer mm. that. Um, I am Oliver and I live in Sheffield in England and I have been a primary school teacher. I have been a head teacher. And I'm now working for a company called Twinkle, who do educational resources online. And I'm yeah. their segment manager for senior leadership. So my role is really to just develop what we're offering for senior leaders within education. Um, and that's, that's me, in a nutshell, certainly professionally, at least. Fab, fabulous. So, Oliver, did you work in the primary sector or secondary sector? Yes. No, I was a primary school teacher. Um, came into it initially teaching sort of upper juniors. But I've, over the course of my career, taught everything from nursery right up to year six. Wow, wow. Have you, have you always been a teacher, like, from day one? Have you always been a teacher? Not always, no. Well, almost always. I, I sort of came through school and, and uh, had a year out before I went to university mm. and then did university, then had another year out um, mm. before I went to do teacher training. And then I've been a teacher from then, so sort of almost always. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. That's incredible. So you must have seen the eras and changes and governance and politics of it all. Yeah, it was one of those things when I first came into teacher training was when the national curriculum was just about coming in. So the teacher training I did was pre-national curriculum. And I went into school and they were all suddenly with these great big box folders with all the statements, wow. tick sheets and all the rest of it, which was... Wow prehistoric really now wow that's incredible and that's completely off the cuff do you think we've made progress as an educational system it's completely off the cuff or do we think we've moved, do we move backwards what do you think i think in some respects there was progress that was made because before that there were there was the possibility to do almost your own thing and there was some incredibly dedicated and fantastic teachers who almost felt sort of straightjacketed out of it yeah. by that rigidity of the national curriculum and but in some cases that sort of has been beneficial mm. but I think it's almost gone in some ways too far um, and maybe starting to come back as we're starting to talk more about sort of well-being and mm. whole child, things like mm. that now but absolutely there was, there was a point where it was almost going too too rigid and too um, I don't know what the word is for it really just sort of straightjacketed and absolutely uh, absolutely I think I referred to it as micro laxatives the other day, which was uh, quite a, a strange analogy. I was actually thinking, I better not write that. I thought, you know what, I think it fits perfectly how it's gone through our system. Mm, no, I read that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Oliver, you, when we had a conversation before, and we went through some questions, you mentioned a teacher who really inspired you. It's Mr. Parker, I believe. Who is Mr. Parker and how did he inspire you? Because he sounds like a wonderful dude. He was great because I, I basically I've been through primary school and had sort of wishy-washy teachers who mm. literally floated in and gone, oh, we fancy doing poetry today or oh, we fancy doing a bit of painting. What do you fancy doing? Um, and I hadn't really got on very well with that. And then I went to secondary school and it was different. It was more, more sort of regimented. Um, and Mr. Parker was my geography teacher wow. and he was my form tutor as well for three years. And he was just one of these real enthusiasts for his subject 
but just a really nice bloke as well. And he was one of those sort of people who had time for everyone. He was very good at what he did. Um, you know, geography teacher was brilliant. He was a really good form tutor as well. He was relaxed enough that you could get on, sort of get on with each other in the form and get yeah. on with him um, without being too worried about what was happening because he had that sort of confidence that... Mm that somebody who really is comfortable in themselves and knows that they're good at what they're doing. So, yeah, he was a great teacher. Absolutely. And you've, 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 you've been in education for such a the longevity of your career as well, and you're still remembering that teacher. And it's yeah. strange. hard to, when I talk to people on podcasts, have conversations with people, they always remember that one teacher, don't they, who changes their life. So that's, that's, incre- that's an incredible story, that is. I can imagine, you know, I, I can just picture him, you know, uh, as being like a really wonderful, you know, outspoken, very enthusiastic soul, bringing life to the classroom, you know, and changing kids' lives. That's what we aspire to, don't we, as well? He, he really, you know, he sort of, he showed what it was to be a good teacher, but also modelled what it was to be a really good person. Mm. Um, and he was, he just, just had time for people. And he was great. Yeah, he was brilliant. I bet it was all about holistic development rather than the academic development. We always talk about that, don't we? Yes. Yeah, because as I came through secondary school, it was at the time there was sort of industrial action. And for a, f- a number of years, there'd been no extracurricular activities, there'd been no sports teams or anything. And he was a real outdoors guy. So he, you know, he would take us climbing at weekends and, you know, there was activities wow. like that happening. And it was more than just getting your GCSE in geography. Mm. Mm. It's, it's a risk takers, isn't it? The teachers who take a risk, innovative, yes, absolutely. I had Mr. Lewis who, he'd stand on tables most lessons, you know, that trying to, uh, yeah, trying to illustrate something or another marketization or something like that. I don't know what he was trying to do, but I always remember those enthusiastic teachers those eccentric people it's uh, i think you're right when you talk about education system i think because we're coming so standardized trying to fit a mold you hope now with well-being and conversations about workload it will go back to giving teachers autonomy, not free reign autonomy mm-hmm. yeah it's almost like a sort of pendulum that needs to swing both ways isn't it so you, you go to the almost the rigidity of standardization and then it needs to come back the other way a little bit but still with that accountability so that the quality of what's happening is really really good absolutely 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 okay um so oliver how would you describe your teaching style in one word or a sentence or (laughs) if there is is one yeah um i i think probably encouraging would Mm. be the the word that i choose um because i've always been everything that i've done in schools whether it's with with children I've worked with or with staff or with parents, it's always been about encouraging them to be the best that they can be and sort of getting the, the best for them. And that almost goes beyond the curriculum. It's, it's about them as individuals and them growing as individuals and it's sort of coaxing and encouraging them along. Mm. Um, so that's very much what I'm about. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think also, particularly when you've got younger teachers for the NQTs, for example, arrive into your school, it's very different from primary to secondary, as you, as you can imagine. But the workload is similar, isn't it? The sort of demands are very similar. So having a head teacher who's not going to pull you into meetings, we'd rather put the arm around you, not literally, but in a proverbial sense, or put the arm around you. Although my head did very often put the arm around me, literally, and I said to sure, this is how we do it. But it's that, again, a holistic approach, isn't it? Sometimes it's just knowing when to and when not to, because there are some times where people, you know, children need a bit of a shock and a bit of a sort of pull up by the bootstrings and let's get on with this, let's do it properly. And there are other times where they need just a little bit of compassion or a little bit of understanding, and it's making that judgment call sometimes. Uh, and it's the same working with, with parents, working with staff as well. You, you just make that judgment call and then you go down whichever road seems appropriate for that situation. Absolutely. It's also about knowing your staff, knowing your cohort of students, you know, pitching it at the right sort of... It's basic differentiation, isn't it? If we differentiate with children, we've got to do with adults as well. But it's a personal sort of side of it. So it's not just a curriculum differentiation. It's, mm. it's knowing them personally and knowing their family situation and knowing what makes them tick and, mm. and what they need. 
Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Having that understanding of individuals rather than collectives is really, really important. I was speaking to a head teacher not too long ago, and most of his students were Pakistani British. He was a, a, a white British fellow himself. He said, sure, I'm really struggling to understand like the class. The, when I first started, I started to understand the cohort. But when I spent a bit of time in the community, started talking to people, I realised there's a lot more similarities than there are differences. So he'd be able to differentiate his sort of language, the way he speaks to parents. Even like very recently, he was saying, you know, I can go into the community and people recognise him. So it's bridging that gap, isn't it? Yeah. And some of the great, the really good head teachers I've worked for have had that relationship with the community and you know, they've hung out in the pub at the weekend or, you know, not inappropriately, but they've yeah. just put themselves out there so that they're available. Mm. And it just breaks down those barriers a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. Make the effort to talk to them or they will make the effort to talk to mm. other people. So, yeah, it really helps. Absolutely. Me and Ahmed, who was on the podcast not too long ago, he, me and, him, me and Ahmed Haya, we spoke about having the community teacher. So I said somebody who not necessarily mingles, but lives within the community, not lives, you know, 50, 60 miles away. Someone who lives within the community, understands the day-to-day lives of those of, the, of their community. I think that's perhaps moved away a, a bit because of academization and sort of like the, the privatised model we have in teaching and education full stop. But yeah. I remember when I was growing up, I'd see teachers like Mr. Russell on the street, Mr. Lewis, who was incredible. You say hello, and it's as respectful. It's, it's almost like they're human beings. Yes, and it's one of the things I've worked at time. I mean, I've worked in a whole range of different schools, but some of them have been very, very small schools. And you almost have more opportunity then because there are less people. So, mm. you know, if you've got 40 families, you can get to know them really, really well. Whereas if you've got 200 families, it's that that bit more difficult. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's just nice being involved in that way. Mm. Absolutely. We serve our community as well as our students, don't we? So it's, uh, it's really important to have that sort of like connection between with individuals it's uh it's wonderful and it's I, one thing i find more and more the more you understand your context the better teacher you are that's what yeah. i've always found i remember when i was working out in spalding out in lincolnshire and i didn't understand that it was a very much a brexit town as you can imagine i fit in perfectly uh <laughs> it, was, it was a very tough place but when i spent a bit of time there i'd go for the odd drive here and there i'd go to the shops every now and again you get a feeling of the place, you get to understand what it's like, the sort of temperature. And once you get that sort of understanding, that tacit knowledge of how people interact with it, you get to understand the students and why they are the way they are. Yes, definitely. And it's almost that you get that sort of level of acceptance as well, where mm. little things will happen where you think, actually, that means the community have accepted me. Mm. Um, and it can be really tiny little things. but Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And there's a lot of merit in reading your class uh, prof- profiles, isn't there? I know some teachers are like, they'll skim through them, but I, I, I find them fascinating. You can learn, and what previous teachers say, I, I love making notes, because I do a lot of supply, you see, uh, and I love making notes, you know, on, on what teachers say about certain students, then I know how to cater for those students' needs. It also tells you a lot about teachers. You know, I've done handover meetings before, and if you're over and done within half an hour and you've just been through the file, you think, mm. actually, that teacher's not quite as keen to, to get to know the kids whereas if you've been there for three hours and you're still talking to each other mm. it just shows that commitment as well absolutely and at primary as you know you're with the child for the whole day so you need to know each child don't you it's it's an, it's an intimate intimate knowledge you have of their of their world you need to and that sort of connection you have with their families where you need to have that yeah and that's for me that's the advantage of teaching primary is that mm. you get to know the children really really well and you see them in so many different contexts you might have a child who you know struggles with english or struggles with art or something like that mm. but there'll be some area of the curriculum where they can excel mm. and there'll be some area of the curriculum that they just you sort of see the lights go on and they just love it mm. and it's having those times with them 
um, that then gets them through the sort of the things that they find a bit more tricky. Absolutely. I'm in awe of early educators. I, mean, I, I did a, a placement, a, a preliminary placement for my PGC, a local primary school. I was in awe. I was thinking, you're with those kids six hours a day. Yeah. And the, the patience and the, the, and the knowledge they have of those students, yeah. how to you talk to them, where they them. sit. Yeah, we have to, I've taken students like that quite a few times in, mm. in various schools I've been in. And there's always been somebody who's made the switch within that week. You know, mm. they've come in for a week and at the end of it, they've gone, wow, it's so amazing. I'm going to go back to university and change mm. to primary rather than secondary. Did you never fancy? Oh, it was close. Honestly, it was a close call. So the lady I was working with, she was lovely, Laura, she said to me, Shreb, are you going to do primary? No, I'm in secondary. I'm happy there. She said, Shreb, if you ever want to do primary, there's a job available here for you. So after my PGC, I did my NQT, yeah, I gave her a call. We had a long conversation over the phone. She was like, oh, Shreb, it has to happen. You have to join us. It's going to be incredible. I did a couple of days, looked around the school and everything, but secondary just keeps pulling me back. I don't know what it is. It's just something about it. It's just... It's just, it's, it, it's, I had such a fantastic time in secondary school myself. I suppose a nostalgia kind of like, you know, it tugs on your heartstrings, doesn't it? Yeah. Fabulous. So, Oliver, I've got another question here for you. So, what are your passions in teaching? So, a lot of people, for example, might be passionate about literacy or numeracy, PE, art. Is there one thing you're particularly passionate about um, in teaching? That's really hard. Um, I think. Off the top of my head, the first thing that springs into mind is just developing people. Mm. And, you know, that sort of holistic approach to, to teaching where, you know, not just the, the students you're working with, but the teachers, the TAs, the parents, the, you know, the community and everything else, just developing everyone and seeing them come on. Um, if it's a sort of curriculum thing, it's almost probably extracurricular type of stuff. I've always been the guy, you know, on the cross-country team and the football team and mm. take the residentials and stuff like that. Um and it's very often it's those bits that you've done that stick out as being the, the sort of wow moments in your teaching. Hmm. So, you know, you look back on what your proudest moments are or what your sort of highlights of the year. And even when you talk with kids at the end of the year, when they do, you know, you sort of leave us events and whatever. Hmm. It's always those, you know, when we did this cross country race or when we did this production or when we did this service or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, so I think it's that bit. Hmm. Um and at times it's probably done me no service because I've been very keen on being a generalist teacher rather yeah. than developing a particular specialism. Mm. So, you know, whereas some people have gone down, you know, I'm a, a literacy expert. And, yes. Um, you know, that's my passion. And then they, they've sort of had a career progression on that. Mm. Um, I've always focused on being the best sort of general primary teacher that I can mm. um, and developing everyone that I've worked with. Mm. Absolutely. I, I like the idea. When I, when I, I was, someone said to me, Shweb, because I've taught like nine different subjects, you name it, geography, RE, food tech, drama, sociology, politics, criminology, psychology, nine subjects yeah. I've taught. So although I'm like jack of all trades, I like the fact that I can pick up bits of ped- small pedagogical skills from each subject and adapt them. If I was just to teach geography, for example, and that would be the only thing I, I – no disrespect to geography teachers out there. They're wonderful in their own regard. But it's nice to walk into a history lesson and teach elements of history and see how you can adapt that into your lessons. It's a, I, I love that. It's like adding more pieces to your puzzle, isn't it? Your own jigsaw, more strings. Be honest, I mean, I'd, I'd be the same. If I did geography all day, every day, I would be bored out of my brains, even though I absolutely love it. Mm. But taking little bits of everything, it's, it's just more enjoyable, and you learn the whole aspects of the curriculum as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I always tell NQTs whenever they rock up at the school or, or in general conversation, if you're an English teacher, for example, you may love English, but if you get a chance to teach media, 
That's yeah. incredible. As a, as a skill, or a bit of drama, it's incredible because you get to see children differently in a different yeah. setting. Now, I, I know many PE teachers also teach things like, like science. So they get the classroom side of things, they also get the practical side of things, the best of both worlds. Yeah, but you also come at things slightly differently, don't you? Yeah. If it's your passion and you're you're a real expert in something, you sort of you can teach it really well. Mm. But there's an aspect of it where if you're not quite so confident, you can see what it's like for the children who are not quite so confident. Mm. So if you're not amazing at music, you're like the you know half the class who are struggling with it, and you can get your head around how that feels and, and encourage them in the same way. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so Oliver, what's for uh, in your career? Sorry. Um, what are two things do you most love about teaching and two things if you could change with a magic wand you'd get rid of? Things you hate, things you dislike, yeah. uh, without mentioning any politicians because I know we're not really keen on some of them, are we? Um, I would probably need more than two for the politician side. <laughs> um, I think probably the two things that I love... How do I pick this? Certainly there'd be those penny drop moments, you know, when you just see the, the, the children's eyes light up when they just get something mm. or they're just totally into something and they're totally engaged with it. And that level of excitement and enthusiasm and engagement that you get within that and that sort of almost the way that you can play off, you know, the class plays off your enthusiasm and you play off their enthusiasm and that level of engagement that you get where it's, mm. it's just magical. That is, it is, it is part of it. Mm. Um, and some of it is just building relationships with, with staff, with families. And it almost, you know, that underpins those magical moments. And mm. it makes it easier to have those magical moments once you've got the bedrock of, you know, you get on and you respect each other and you, you understand each other. And then you, you do those magic moments and, and it just works. Absolutely. I think one thing I find in particular, when, when you get a child on board... You yes. never lose them off that, do you? And I can see like, I, our audience, our audience, they'll be listening. They can't see, can they? They've got the visuals of it. But I can see your eyes light up when you talk about students. That sort of feeling is still there, you know, yeah. which is incredible. And I think one thing I always tell anybody, I spoke to school leaders, I ask them, do you still teach? And when they say no, they're losing so much. They're losing such a important part of their actual job title their job role into the career in the first place that mm. excitement you get in a classroom is what's mm. brought you into it absolutely if you can keep hold of that absolutely you won't get that same level of excitement in a boardroom or sat in an office it's it's when you're with the students it's a it's, it's an incredible feeling it really is i i I'd probably get i'm probably become more immature in front of, not I'm immature anyway but i probably become more immature when i'm around the students and it, it kind of like, it makes you feel younger if it makes you stand up taller you know you're changing the world in your own way it's a, it's an incredible feeling i can't when you're in front of nothing there's nothing for me there's nothing better than seeing a teacher in full flow teaching yeah. teaching their class there's nothing better than that it's they're at, they're, at, they're, they're at their optimum. The kids are engaged, well, hopefully anyway, most of the time. It's, it's an incredible feeling. It really is an incredible feeling. And that could be with a really small group of kids or it could be with like a whole school assembly. And there's times where you have the whole school in the palm of your hand almost mm. and you get that same level of excitement mm. and engagement from mm. them. But yeah, it's one of those things. The better heads that I've worked with are the ones who've carried on in some way, whether it's covering classes or whether yes. it's assemblies and making them really magical. Mm. It's it's that that's kept them going, mm. um, and that that's kept them engaged as well mm. as the kids. You mentioned assemblies. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned assemblies. When I was at primary school, I was sent out of every single assembly for not singing. Well, singing too loud or yeah. singing out of tune because I can't sing. So I think the uh, the song or the hymn "Shine Jesus Shine" used to come up on quite regularly. I wouldn't completely like I'd butcher it. It's just that bit too high for a lot of yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. My voice broke 
coconut bar. 14, so I had a really squeaky voice for a very long time. So you can hear my voice from a mile off. Yeah. So the teacher's Miss Thrower, if she's probably listening to this, she would send me out of every single assembly, bless her. Yeah, I've got a colleague who I know who, who still tells the story about his NQT year and going into assembly and this song coming on and him thinking, right, I'll really bellow it out. And it was one of those schools where the kids sort of mumbled and didn't really do very much singing. Mm. And this look of horror on the class's faces as they turn around to see this new teacher just <laughs> not quite managing to get it right. Oh, that's incredible. That is incredible. We miss that in secondary schools. You know that. I know some schools have a religious ethos and they do hymns and assemblies, but we miss that in secondary school. That sort of like, you know, things like, I don't know, um, like non-uniform days, they're becoming more and more scarce, aren't they? And, uh, you know, when you have like community events and, you know, um, you know things for charity and, and you know, uh, uh, when you collect uh, food uh, food collections and food banks and stuff, that's becoming more scarce. But that connection you have, and it takes the children out of the immediate vicinity of a classroom. I think that's what I think we find really- from that as well. Mm. That you can, you know, it doesn't have to be that you throw the curriculum out and do mm. do a one off day. It's that you can do so much of the teaching within that day. So if you've got World Book Day, it's not just dress up and then carry on as normal. Mm. It's talk about books. It's have authors in it. There's so much you can do. Absolutely, uh, I think it happens very much so. Absolutely, I think you're right. I think once children leave sort of the primary setting, secondary setting becomes too, it becomes so standardised. Yes. And it's very difficult for teachers to then develop those relationships with those students because they're expected to be very standardised, aren't they? I think one thing I'm finding more and more, when marking became huge and everyone started wishy-washy marking multiple coloured pens and highlighters, which have no empirical basis at all and not research-informed, we won't go into that. That's a completely different rant. But I remember that arrived. That came from the primary sector. The primary sector have moved away from that now. I'm hoping the secondary sector do the same because it adds nothing. If it adds nothing to a child's progress and it doesn't benefit the staff... I'll, I'll just put it in the bin personally. That's just my my take on it. Sort of looking at it, thinking that just doesn't. You know, I'll do it because I have to. And I've had that with my own children, where that you know the books come home at the end of the year, and you look through them, and they they say, "What's this?" And uh, you know, they've done stuff because the teachers expected to them mm. to, so that they can show that they've made progress. So they've like dumbed down at the beginning, and then um, you know made it look as if they've done really well at the end. Okay. It's frustrating. It is really frustrating. So, Oliver, you've managed to uh, uh, stray away from the two questions, two things you dislike about teaching. If you can change. Um, let me have a think. Probably some of the sort of sillier curriculum-focused, test-focused type of stuff. Mm. Um, I know when the national curriculum in primary changed and we proved that we could train 11-year-olds to pass exams, but some yeah. of what they were learning to get through those those SATs was not of great benefit. And, you know, they go to secondary school and some of the this sort of quite complex grammar they know, mm. don't necessarily need when they get there and the perfect handwriting to get the greater depth in the writing, it just isn't valued. Mm. So some of that sort of almost teaching to the test type of um, mm. stuff that goes on all the way through... Um, all the way to university, all the way to university yeah. is frustrating. Yeah. yeah. And that so, love for learning, that love for learning is just, it's eviscerated, isn't it? Yeah. And you almost end up as a teacher, you can get the kids engaged and you can get them focused and you can mm. get them really keen to do well to please you mm. and because they're enjoying it. But it's some of what you're teaching sometimes you look at and you think, is, is that really going to be all that useful at some point later in their life? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That, that would be one thing I, I would not be mm. up to see go. Mm. Um, and probably just the political agendas. Yep. You know, we yep. see some of what happens within 
within schools and, and within local authorities or academy chains or whatever. Some of, the, some of what's happening is almost to further people's careers or to further people's agendas mm. rather than being for the real benefit of, of the community and the, the children within that. Absolutely. So, yeah, well, there was a school not long ago, and I was reading about it on social media, and a friend um, will also work there, and their school was run by the local authority. They were doing really well. They got outstanding with Ofsted repeatedly, and um, an academy trust took it over. And within a year, they lost most their teachers. Within a year, they were put into RI, and within a year, they lost most their year sixes, most, sorry, most their year threes from reception coming up. A lot of parents decided to send them elsewhere. It's yeah. eviscerated something that was, you know, golden you know something working so so absolutely absolutely what was the purpose of of radically i I know i've worked in schools where heads have arrived and they've walked in and said we're going to change this this and this but it's worked previously i'm not saying don't be don't take on new ideas but unless there's an empirical basis of it working i want to know if it's been mandated who's it been mandated by is it the trust is it the governors who well there's also a a real case for knowing your context and what's mm. worked in one school you you pluck those ideas and put them into a totally different context and they may not work with a mm. different group of children a different group of staff mm. a totally different sort of historical background in that school if you don't know that school's story and the journey they've been on mm. then you can fall really flat on your face because things don't always transfer mm. sometimes it's it's a case of not understanding the basis of of those systems so you know you impose the system with the purple pen rather than understanding the conversations that leads up to mm. using that effectively to mark mm. it's Absolutely. those conversations and that understanding that you need to have rather than just have we got a standardized marking policy absolutely i think you know as well more than anyone if the staff know it's going to benefit the students they're on board they will jump on board straight away but if it's just there as an arbitrary idea to to please someone or it's worked elsewhere and it's been adapted because it works elsewhere that's dangerous it's it's, it's like comparing apples and pears isn't it almost yeah and there's so much you can learn in any school from what's happening that's successful within that Mm. school that you know there are there will be people doing really good stuff in pockets mm-hmm. somewhere in in most schools and it's it's learning from those and developing that mm. within your own context mm, absolutely one thing i always whenever i when i did my nqt and even now till this day i like going to see other teachers teach i like to see how they are it does i don't know it's not about ofsted-esque observations or you know ticking boxes i just like to see how they interact with students and it's so nice to get a flavor of different teachers isn't it and, and yeah. see how they are you know pitching lessons differentiating how they teach and how you can adapt that into your practice we're always learning aren't we oh yeah and it's what I, you know every student every trainee that i've ever worked with i've said when you get the time mm. make the best use of it and the best use isn't necessarily catching up on your file mm. it's going into other people's classroom and it's arranging visits and it's arranging to do sort of coaching bits and pieces with them mm. because you learn so much more from that definitely even an experienced teacher there was you know literally every classroom you walk into and everybody you watch teach you pick something up and it, you can just sort of grab hold of tiny little ideas from their classrooms or their practice and go oh yeah i can take that back to mine i can do mm. that and uh, yeah absolutely really i had a class once oliver and they were real tough boys class and they struggle with behavior behavior is appalling there was 30 of them oh my god they, they didn't like me and it was my nqt i was i was frightened nervous and I went to go and observe a maths teacher. Her name was Diane. Um, yeah. She did an um, activity with them where if they were too loud, she'd take, she had the word noise written on the board. She'd rub off one of the letters. 
Yeah. And it worked with them every time. I thought, you know, I'll adapt that. And I put that into my classroom and it worked with them as well. So it's that continuity. And if I didn't have that, I reckon they would have probably made me cry every day. They made me cry for the first week, couple of weeks, I'd have really? sure. Yeah. yeah, they were tough. But by the end of the year, it was more tears of joy rather than sadness. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's, a, it's picking those ideas and sometimes it's just putting your own slight sort of... Absolutely. It's got to be your way of doing it. Because mm. I've, I've seen I've seen people observe other people teach and on it, there was a... a trainee I worked with a few years ago and he was brilliant he was absolutely cracking teacher um but he was working with a, a really tiny little lady in reception and she had a little tambourine that she did for the making the children quiet um and then he responded perfectly to her because she was like five foot nothing and very yes. prim and proper lovely um and then this great big six foot bl- ex army bloke tinkled his tambourine looked at him and went it's not you and, and yeah. it was felt totally flat and he had to find his own way that was his sort of manly mm. blocks of wood mm. or, or whatever just to make it his slight his slant on it absolutely uh, and then it worked with the kids it was brilliant mm. finding your identity as a teacher is incredible I, I remember when I first rocked up Oliver to my school I wore a three piece suit I was uncomfortable by the end of the week I thought I could, this can't carry on so I decided to go oh, yeah. check shirt and Doc Martens and that's what I went for for the end of the year I felt more comfortable yeah. kids started seeing me more, more around the school there were a lot yeah. more I was just able to be myself a bit more your, your yeah. teacher identity is yeah. I the can't tell you I thought this they know if you're comfortable in your own skin and you're yes. confident in your own appearance and, and everything else then they respond to that but they mm. know at the moment you walk in if you're feeling uncomfortable they, they can sense it absolutely absolutely I think uh, Audrey Pantelli said it as well that children have a very good radar and I, my granddad God bless me used to call it the bullshit radar the BS radar children yeah. can spot things immediately and they realise when someone's there for a, for a long time or there just for a short time um, and I think I think particularly if you're a supply teacher and I've done supply as well uh, you know in my career as well children can sense it really quickly and they can tend to strong to see can sense someone a teacher strong and rigid with their ideas and consistent and there's those who are not so again it's about knowing your kids isn't it knowing your cohort and knowing your context as well. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, Oliver, I've got another question here for you, okay? Thus far in your career, what has been the biggest challenge you've faced? I know we face challenges every single day, but has there been one in particular yeah. that you had that's been uh, more uh, more difficult or more challenging? Um, I don't know what to pick for that, because I've got loads of ideas buzzing around in my head. <laughs> um, there was one point where I was head and I was teaching 07 and I had nobody in the office. Well, a caretaker was off. And it was literally, you know, I'd teach three and a half days a week and I'd run the office and I'd do the, the opening up in the morning. Wow. Down in the afternoon, at the end of the day, locking up. And that, like, nearly finished me. Wow. And it's one of those things. I'm, I'm sort of a little bit worried at the moment. There are schools trying to cover um, absences of staff at the moment and heads going, well, I can cover that class and I can do that. And it just yes. takes away from the strategic view of everything because mm. you're just fighting fires the whole time. So mm. that that was really tough. I can imagine. Uh, I'm trying to think. But my first headship, I took over a school that had been an acting head for a while and it was pretty much in meltdown. Um, and that was tough as well because you had to be just about everywhere. Um, and just showing that sort of presence and that consistency of behaviour management mm. and just demonstrating what you wanted at lunchtime, what you wanted at break time and what you wanted in the classrooms, mm. that was really hard to, to just begin to establish that from what was almost chaos and staff that were very, very frightened. Mm. Um, 
I think it's one of those things where getting staff to buy into your ideas as well as a new member of staff. I think I've worked with head teachers that have arrived immediately. You think, really? You think, really? And it's, they have to almost be a salesman as well. And right at this point in time, like with COVID and the pandemic and everything, who'd be a head teacher? Who'd be head of a school? No, I, I was tempted over the summer and then had one or two conversations with people where they were still getting up at like five in the morning to write the SAF. And I just went, no, not in August. No, I don't fancy that. That's, uh, and also one thing I find really frustrating as well, the, 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 I've been accused of it myself, SLT bashing. If anything, for me, it's more about the culture and practices that I want to bash, not the people and the individuals. Yeah. At this moment in time, I don't think we should be bashing anyone apart from, you know, the decision makers at right at the top of society. Uh, I think they're the ones where we should be questioning. And I think we're going to be kinder towards our school leaders because this is not a, like, how can I, how, I was reading today, um, in a school where 16 members of staff are already off ill because of COVID, they've gone to take tests. So how does yeah. the school cover for 16 members of staff? Do it now, but it's it's almost polarised things, hasn't it? Because there are schools where it's really united the staff, and they've mm-hmm. seen, you know, how much the head teacher is trying to do for them, and how much she's mm-hmm. going. You know, the, the amount of pressure there is there, and they really pull together under that and gone mm-hmm. right. We're part of a team, and we're going to make this work. And there's other schools where people are pulling in different directions and, mm-hmm. and not enjoying working together. Um, so it's it's a real opportunity for mm-hmm. some schools to just pull together and, and unite behind a, a really good leader absolutely i know i'm just going to go off the cuff slightly but how would you manage all those egos like there must there's a lot there must there's a lot of egos on there you know there's a lot of people with their own ideas it must be like managing children managing adults is a very different ball game very different but there are parallels with both and mm. you almost have to you have to be really clear about where you're going mm. and you have to be really clear that you know that is going to happen and mm. that you're not going to waver too much from that, and you certainly can't sort of make allowances for people. I've I've seen um, I've seen it with heads. I've seen it with other people where they've sort of said, "Oh well, I need to appease such and such because mm. they're a strong, strong character." And then I need to appease another person because they're, you know, they have particular demands almost. And and the moment you start wavering like that, it becomes much much more difficult. Mm. So you've almost got to have that sort of laser focus, but then that encouragement for everyone. Um, and if people see that you want the best for them and that you want the best for the school, then you can sort of bring them all together like that. But it's hard. It's really I can hard. imagine, I can imagine. And to think that even like in your NQT is difficult, but I can never imagine what it's like to, to run an entire school and, and the pressure of the community as well. And you've got other stakeholders, you've got the teachers, you've got uh, support staff, you've got HR admin, then you've got the governors, you've got school boards, you've got meetings after school. One of the heads I worked with, she used to work every day from six till six and then at home, she'd leave, leave work at six and go and do four or five, four or five hours extra. And with safeguarding as well, it's constant, is it? Your phone has to be on all the time. It's one of those things that you just don't leave. You, you mm. don't put it to one side. And you've got to be quite comfortable in yourself and quite comfortable mm. in that role because you're you're living it rather than clocking on and clocking, or clocking mm. off at the end of the day. Mm. But it is a good job. That is tricky. And also find that work-life balance because because if you've got a family, for example, yeah. it must be, you know, it must be something that... Like, I remember I sat with a teacher um, not too long ago. She was a geography teacher. I was out there on supply. And she said to me, I'm spending more time with other people's kids and I am my own and that's a I think we are having more conversations about well-being now than ever before and work-life balance but we should be anyway it should be on the agenda anyway but finding that balance must be especially as a you know someone who's got so much responsibility yeah 
Well, that was, I mean, the first time I came out of headship was, was for that very reason. I had very young children. My wife was working really long hours and mm. we just sat down at one point and just went, we can't do this. We can't both have really responsible jobs. So I stepped back, um, went back into the classroom three days a week, absolutely loved it, but then got sucked back into headship again within, it was less than a year because I, I, I enjoyed what I did. Mm. Yeah. And clearly you must have been very good at what you did after school, carried on seeing that potential there as well and that, that skills and experience as well. So I hope so. <laughs> I think we can only try our best, can't we? And I think ultimately our legacy is the students that we've taught and the, and the communities and the sort of our, the audience that we've had. That's, that's how I look at it. That's, that's our legacy as teachers, isn't it? Ultimately, you know, we can all, you know, on our, I remember not too long ago, someone said to me, you know, on, on your grave, it won't say achieved X in X progress, eight score. You know, it will say your name and then people will remember the, the person's name rather than their achievements and accolades. So it's about setting that legacy. And I think, you know, you have people right across the education system. If you're there for the students, you're there to support your staff, you're a team player, people want to know you. They, they want to be around you. They want, they, want, they want you on their team. Yeah, definitely. And it's one of the things, it's more enjoyable as well. You, you see teachers who have that mindset and have that excitement and enthusiasm are the ones that, that last and the ones that keep coming back to, to it year after year. Mm. Um, whereas the ones who are just doing it to tick the box or to take the salary, it, it would be far too much. Mm. Just Absolutely. When you get these schemes, like I'm not going to publicly discredit schemes, but they are, you know, teach first and, and things like that, where there's this impression that anybody can be a teacher I don't believe that's the case. I think it's very much a, it's such a holistic, inborn sort of, you can't, you can't manufacture a teacher. I, I've worked with people who've, uh, on my PGC, there was people who were on the course that I could just, unfortunately, you can just tell sadly that they're not there for a long time. They probably won't be able to be there for, because they're, they've got a careerist mindset. And I think me and I was talking to a friend as well, and they were talking, how do we weed out the careerists? I think they get weeded out themselves anyway. They do. But it's one of the joys of working with trainees is that mm. you get a really good one come through the door and you can tell within 10 minutes of mm. walking in the classroom that this person is just made for it. They've got that relationship with the kids. They've got mm. that manner. They've got that enthusiasm and they just get it. And it's brilliant because you can t- you can teach them so much about classroom management and curriculum knowledge and everything else. Mm. But they've got that sort of basis in the, the beginning. Whereas Absolutely. some of the trainee, you know, you'll get certain trainees come through the door and you look at them and you think, it's going to be really hard for you Mm. and you can teach them the skills and anyone can learn stuff Mm. but if you've not got that sort of underlying teacher nurse and it sounds really vague but but if you've not got that in the first place you're almost aiming for sort of 80 90 percent good rather than just being an absolute natural yeah absolutely correct i think it's it's such a uh, it's such a monumental decision and job to decide to become a teacher once you are a teacher you're fully fledged it's like a donor card isn't it you literally are sacrificing so much of your your time your commit you're so you're so committed to your role and to those students as well and it's um it's 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 not people say it's a career i think it's a vocation i think once it becomes a a career and a contractual obligation i think it's time to look elsewhere that's why i've always found a lot of the people that you see outside of school doing other things Mm. that have a sort of teacher event to them you get talking to them and it turns out yes they've been a teacher or yes Mm. they're still a teacher and the people who run swimming clubs and running clubs and you know art activities Mm. and go off doing forest stuff at the weekend and that very often they're the ones who are either still working in teaching or Mm. have done that and have that sort of innate um teacherness Mm. um that that end up being the ones who organize stuff and the ones who do stuff Mm. Absolutely. No, I totally agree with you. And I think we're at a time of a teacher retention and recruitment crisis and recruiting those, you know, I, I, the way I look at NQ, I describe our NQTs as daisies, aren't they? They are, 
they, they need to be harnessed and supported and to blossom rather than be trampled on and finding that balance between allowing them to be autonomous in the classroom but also providing them the support they need i was very afraid to ask for help oliver when i started my t- uh, teaching career my my NQT mentor Gemma, I know she's going to be listening to this. She used to always say to me, "Shreem, if you need any help, I'm next door, and I would never call for help." It was when I began to struggle with some classes and some students. I said, "Gemma, I need some support." She said, "She said to me, I cannot believe you've asked me for support after so long of me basically begging you. you know, if you need any support, yeah. use it." But it is finding that balance, isn't it? It is, yeah, and it's it's giving people because they need to. As a trainee, you need that sort of time to find your own feet and your own way of doing it. You almost have to sort of fail a little bit, but not catastrophically. You have to have things go not quite right to then analyse and unpick. What do I need to do next? What can I change next time to to do that learning? Mm. Um, But, yeah, it's hard to get the balance because you can sort of spoon feed people and then they never quite get it. Mm. Or you can just throw them in and and they're totally overwhelmed. And Mm. it's just having that balance. Again, it comes down to knowing people. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely been able to see what makes people tick and whether they need that extra support or whether they need that that little bit of freedom to to find their own feet mm, of course and i think once you again it's a good links to the idea of differenti- differentiating for our audience i think once you know your cohort know your staff you're able to provide the support they need like for example with me it was mainly about how i use my time appropriately because i used to spend a lot of time listening to music rather than doing ppa and, and actually you know using my freeze appropriately when my mentor called me over Gemma, she said to me Shreve, what are you doing in your ppas I'm like, I'm listening to music. She goes, you need to be doing marking. You need to be doing planning. You need to be doing this, this, and this. Do your data. So it's about, she got this idea in my head that whilst I'm in the building at work, I'm actually working. And when I'm on my way home, I can listen to music, etc. So it's, um, it's, it's one of those finding that balance. Yeah, with PPA, you've almost got to plan how you're going to use it and get everything yep. ready so that you you know you sit down and that time is really precious and mm. you've got all the books that you need or the logins for whatever mm. on the computers and you've got everything ready so you're not wasting your time going, oh, I need that printing, I need to go mm. and find that book, I need to go and find out to do this. Mm. You can actually sit down and really focus. Mm. I think someone said to me the other day that most of, I think 60% of teaching is faffing around, isn't it? It's finding <laughs> things and putting you know paper in printers. Yeah, the number of times you can turn up at the photocopier and somebody's jammed it and then walked away. I'm, I'm that person. I'm that person. I do that all the time, um, every day. I, deli- I don't say I deliberately jam it, but I like walking away like quietly and no one realises. Like, I, I tend to break a lot of my technology in my school, but bless them, they are good to me. Yeah, it just happens. It's just, yeah, I'm quite clumsy, actually, to be fair. But no, it's, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's, how we allocate our time in our working, I'm not talking about directed time or CPD, the actual time we've got, in the building, how we use that time, it's so important to try and finish work and leave at a time where we can go home, we yes. can unwind, have some dinner, spend some time with family, do some exercise, read a book, and have some sort of balance between our work and the work life and, and home life. Because if you're constantly working, you'll get to a stage where you will end up hating it. Oh, yes. Yeah. And it's having that balance of knowing that there's going to be sort of pinch times where it, it is really busy if you've mm. got parents evenings one week or they'll be online this year. But, you know, that sort of extra commitment that we yep. need a week before where you're just slightly more chilled or you've got a little bit more time mm. to yourself, mm. knowing that you're then going to be really tired the following week. Mm. And just having that sort of balance of almost uh, the sort of waves of busyness that you get within the school year. Absolutely. I think that also prepares your body for it as well. You're physically able to, you might get extra few hours sleep at the weekend just in case to, on Monday you might have a parents evening. So it's having that sort of preparation. Mm. It's a small thing they don't teach you on your PGC. That's the thing I found as well. Because I rocked up in my NQT after the first two weeks, I was, I was 
shattered. I was completely destroyed. And then I sat down with my mentor, Gemma. She said, Trev, they're not going to teach you this, this, and this in your PGC. I will try and support you the best that I can. So we did things like meal prep, for example. Yeah. And things like that. It just saves time in the evening. You've got your drawer of snacks in the classroom. Yes. Saying late, you're not on your knees and you've got the walk in the car and all those little absolutely, absolutely, make it that bit more manageable. Mm, Absolutely, I remember Gemma, bless her, she gave me a um, a a notepad, uh, so a small diary, uh, and she said to me, Every right in here, when you're going to put diesel in your car, and you're going to have to do it that morning. And it was the little things, like the motherly things that she did, it was incredible. I have to, she was the best mentor I could have ever asked asked for because it's the things like, I don't know. I was really bad with like using a planner, but literally she used to walk in my room. She goes, have you used your planner? I like, yes, I've used it. Sure, show me a planner. And little things like that. It was uh, a holistic development. Yeah, I think in my NQT year, I remember my deputy head had a, one of these big stock cupboards. And every year she would buy up Easter eggs after Easter when they were really cheap. And if you had an absolutely shocking day, she'd appear <laughs> with an Easter egg. For wow. you. Just, you know, absolutely fantastic. Even, you know, June time to get this Easter egg. Yeah. Uh, and think actually she's noticed that things haven't quite gone right mm. um, and she's there she's got your back and then you'd have a cup of tea and a chat through and, and you'd probably mm. put the world to rights and sort it out and come mm. up with all sorts of strategies together but it's just having somebody who's got that time and, and that sort of eye to spot things that mm. that need you know, people that need picking up and, and things absolutely that... it's, the, it's the human touch that brings it's incredible <laughs> you see when you hear stories i bring a smile to your face because there's such a big disconnect at times, isn't there, between leadership and, and, and people who work on the front line and the chalk face. But when you bridge that disconnect, you know, amazing things can happen. Oh, yeah. People will move mountains for you. If absolutely. You absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I have a last couple of questions here for you, OK? I think the next one kind of links to what we've been saying, kind of really summarise it all. What advice would you have for new teachers entering the profession, our NQTs, uh, yeah. or trainees? What advice would you have for them? Um... I would say probably to get to know everybody that you're working with, mm. get to know your support staff really, really well. Because if you, you know, if your cleaner is on side and you've looked after her a little bit and you've maybe made her a cup of tea if she needs it, or you've made sure the classroom's reasonably tidy before she comes in, um, she will spot the days where you've absolutely had it mm. and she'll be there for you. Or if, you know, if you've kept your caretaker on side, there'll be times where you need to have that extra five minutes and they'll give you that grace because you've built that relationship or, you know, there'll be somebody in the office who, because you've always been polite and nice and treated them with respect, there'll be a bale of paper that gets put to one side when everyone else has run out. Mm. So I think it would probably be to just look after the people you're working with. Absolutely. Because there will be times where you just need picking up a little bit. And if you've been pleasant to them, if you've treated them with respect, if you've, you know, built up that relationship, they'll spot those times and they'll pick you up. And mm. you really need that sometimes. Not just as an NQT, you need people looking out for you. Absolutely. Me and Anne-Louise spoke about Anne-Louise was saying about how finding that person in the school but and supporting everyone. And it, well, for example, our cleaners, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult job. The salary isn't great. And even opening a door for them, for example, it's a small things. And, and we talk about kindness ripples. And I get tagged in them all the time on Twitter. I'm very fortunate. And some days when I make a difficult day, you get tagged in. It brings a smile to your face. You're in excellent company. But it's the small little bit, a small like... Um, small interaction of kindness do you have or action of kindness do you have with someone it ripples a ripple effect it comes always comes back to you and it never costs you anything yes you could just a smile or a kind word or you're making a cup of tea just pop into the next door classroom say i'm making a cup of tea do you want one 
those little things that don't take any extra effort that will just build those relationships and just pick people up a little bit. Mm. And it's so worth it. Mm. So and cool. it absolutely breaks that mold of, you know, we're always at work. It creates more of a community feeling. And when you have staff that I know sounds, this is going to sound a bit, a bit crazy, I suppose at times when staff are friends and they're friendly around each other, the children pick that up as well. They, yeah. they sense that it's very atmospheric when there's tension they pick it up but when yeah. there's a, a collective feeling and that comes from again being nice to each other being courteous to one another yeah they pick it up and they know you know even if it's the, the, the lessons in full flow and somebody comes from next door and needs glue sticks or something mm. they can see the way that you treat that person with respect mm. or not and they pick up on that and they you know they model that behavior based on what you do mm. so yeah it always matters Absolutely, absolutely. That is a fan. Any of our NQTs or trainees listening to this podcast, that's absolutely really, really important advice. It's very intricate as well, something very much very banal and day to day, but it's the small interactions that will have the biggest effect on our teaching and the biggest impact on our students' progress as well. So make sure you note that down. You guys are doing the small things, you know, holding doors for open for people, being nice to one another, just being pleasant and um, kind and courteous and you know giving everyone time and space whether it's a librarian or ta whoever you're working with everyone's got a story everyone's everyone's got something unique to bring to the table yeah and people talk and it's surprising mm. in, a, in a school community you know that person who runs the breakfast club is probably somebody's mum and they know somebody yes. else and they will know that mr so-and-so or mrs so-and-so is pleasant and always says hello or comes to breakfast club on thursday and is lovely and chats to mm. the kids or, or whatever and that spreads and it's like that ripple effect you were talking about that mm. it just comes back to you at times absolutely absolutely and in a job that can be quite lonely can be quite difficult the hours that we put in the small things can make such a big difference it's uh it's a, i think our micro interactions with one another are really important and we again it's something that's perhaps not necessarily taught on the pgc the holistic sort of the interpersonal side of things but it's something we all, we all need to work on and develop every single day definitely yeah and it's whatever age you're working with. As you were talking, I was thinking, oh, yeah, year five and six, they really get that because they sort of pick up on the, the subtleties. But it works with younger children as well. They maybe yes. give it a different way, but they still spot the way that you treat people. Mm. So, yeah, look, absolutely. They can see interactions in doorways, how you look at one another. Children are very smart. And I just think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're all fighting one battle. That is to get these children to progress at school and succeed and if we're working okay. together as a, as a as a cohesive team, we're collective. You know, we are stronger together, aren't we? Yes, definitely. Mm. Fabulous, Oliver. Got last two questions here for you. These are more, yeah. more the trivial ones, okay? Um, yeah. Because this series is called Heroes Without Capes, Oliver, yeah. who is your favourite superhero? I wanted to say Captain Underpants. As you oh. Actually, no. Um, despite the fact that they're great books. Um, I think probably Spider-Man. Spider-Man's cool. Yes, Spider-Man, because, you know, the sort of science clever guy yeah. who, who has a sort of a, an alter ego almost or a sort of another side to them. Yeah. And that freedom of just going places and being able to sort of get off and do stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, Spider-Man would be mine, I think. Uh, absolutely. I used to like, yes, I used to like Tobey Maguire as Spider-Man, but the new boy who's done it, he's, he's wicked, he's amazing. He's, I think he's British, isn't he? He's really cool. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Yeah, yeah that's speed and agility and cleverness and everything yes absolutely and it also targets a younger audience as well but it also gets the older audience the old comic book fans as well i think the comic book series has got so many so many more uh, so many more parts to it so eventually you know you we could have like 10 15 20 years worth of uh, spider-man films keep going yeah yeah absolutely yours 
Uh, I'm kind of like between Batman and Incredible Hulk, but I don't like Incredible Hulk, the new one, the CGI. Remember when we were kids? Uh, yes. I was a kid, sorry. And uh, he would, uh, Hulk was a man, actual physical man, and, like, and he would like flip over cars and things like that. That was my that was my favorite version of Incredible Hulk. But uh, yeah, and uh, Batman's just really cool. Like I just think he's mysterious and I, want yeah. I just want the car. Yeah, <laughs> the Batmobile is pretty cool. Yeah. Too, yeah. So Oliver, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Um, probably being in more than one place at one time. That's you cool. know, the number of times where you sat in a meeting and you think, I don't really need to be here. Yeah, well, it could have been an email. <laughs> be able to do something else yeah. uh, at the same time would be really good or be able to be out, you know, being free out in the hills or something whilst physically looking as if you're present somewhere else. Mm. Uh, that would be pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I think that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty cool, yeah, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> Oliver, last question, okay, the most important question is the most important question on any podcast I ever do. What is on your playlist? What type of music do you listen to? And, and we need to know this. Do you listen to, like, I don't know, this is this is your free reign and maybe... Yeah, all right. this is, I nearly sent you something this, this afternoon, so okay. I need to forward you um, a song by Alina, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, I'll do that later. Okay, cool. But I've I've got a really eclectic mix of, of That's stuff. Brilliant. I grew up listening to sort of rock, and I was the you know before grunge even. You know, okay. Like Snake De- I'm from Sheffield, Def Leppard are from Sheffield. You know, they were absolutely massive at the end of the ninety, end of the eighties, early nineties. Mm. Uh, and I still listen to stuff like that. Mm. Um, and then more sort of acoustic type of stuff Annie DiFranco is brilliant yes 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 come across the work yeah modern stuff and literally at the moment anything from from Halsey to Lute to James Bay um, oh, James Bay is brilliant I love James Bay's music he's brilliant uh, me and Anne Louise listen to Paolo Nettini Paolo Nettini is another really really good singer yes no, really good Paolo's so, really yeah. really good and uh, James Morrison James Morrison's an incredible singer very underrated very very yeah. underrated it's but really good when you find somebody like that who's who not that nobody's heard of, but mm-hmm. then, you know, it's just a little bit under people's radar and it's like, yep. wow, amazing. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, a real mix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what about Red Hot Chili Peppers? You listen to the chilies? Not so much, no. Really? I mean, I've listened to them, but, you know, they're not a favourite particularly. It's one of those that if it's on, it's there, and if it's not, then, then I don't go looking for them particularly. So I probably should. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm big on Bon Jovi. I like Bon Jovi, to be fair. Um... Any Motown I like. I like anything from Motown completely. Yes, absolutely. Um, right now, I'm listening to things like Lisa Loeb and people like that. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. It just happens. I just get a song. Soul Asylum. I listen to Soul Asylum. They're, they're, quite, they're quite cool. Uh, Nirvana, they're okay? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and then um, I'm listening to a lot of ska as well, like The Clash, The Jam. Um, yeah. Oh, the Specials. Yeah, are they good? Uh, Luther Vandross, people like that, you know. It's a complete, complete different schema. So I go from, like, 70s to, like, 90s, and I go from, like, you know, like, I don't know, um, Amy Grant to, like, Outcast really quickly, like, within, like, within a flick of a switch. Yes, yeah. And Massive Attack and people like that, so... Mm, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Right. But it's, it's lovely. I think music really connects people, like regardless yeah. of where they're from. It's it's an incredible. I've I've been very fortunate on social media where I've managed to connect with people simply because of music. We have nothing in common, yeah. but music connects us, and we can like have conversations and dialogues and whatnot. But yeah, um, I think music is a really really important forum, and it breaks down cultures and barriers between people, doesn't it? 
but yeah and it's great there's certain times with work where you can there's certain things i need to focus so much on that i mm. can't be listening to anything i'm totally having to be in the zone mm. and other times where you can just have that big headphones on and, and be sort of fairly focused yeah and you know i get to do a weekly newsletter where we have to code everything in html and mm. doing that i need the headphones on and yeah there. Uh, and it's just great being able to lose yourself in that. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. No, Oliver, it's been absolutely incredible to have you on the podcast. Uh, you have a fantastic career. You're a fantastic bloke. And I think one thing I realised just having the conversation that we spoke previously as well, I can really tell you've had a legacy. You've left a real lasting impression and legacy on those kids that you've taught, and they're going to remember you. And you're going to be just like the Mr. Parker. So how you how you've passed on that legacy as well. And it's like you say, it's a ripple effect. So kids in the future will say, "Sir taught us," and it'll just it'll just it'll continue that ripple effect will carry on and and it's incredible because we are ultimately you know we have our own families but it's the families we inspire outside yes our own immediate when you bump into people you've taught and they're now doing things because of what you've done um it's just a really nice feeling when you 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 meet somebody and and they've they've done really well Mm. and you've been just a tiny little bit of that and it very often is only a tiny little bit but it, Mm. it does make a difference absolutely absolutely no oliver it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much for your time Great, thank you very much. It's been lovely. Thank you. Take care, Oliver. And there we have it, episode three of Heroes Without Capes. If you wish to be on the podcast, please get in touch with me at shwebcon26 on Twitter. We'll have a dialogue and then we can collaborate.